Hear then the word of the Lord. Book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, that the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not uh, on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Blessed is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I watched the Super Bowl last week. Anybody else watch the Super Bowl? Nobody? Some? You're like, the Patriots aren't in it. Who cares? I watched the Super Bowl last week, and Google promised good news for us in one of its commercials. Anybody catch this? Google Pixel promises good news that you can now edit people out of your photos in your phone. You, can, you now, through this new phone and this new technology, you can erase things from real pictures on your phone. So the whole commercial was pictures of you and distractions in the background that you don't want to see anymore. And so it gave all these examples of this, this new technology known as the magic eraser. You can simply circle or brush a distraction you want to remove from your picture. It uses artificial intelligence to understand exactly what you want to erase and then predicts what the new space should look like with the distraction gone. So for instance, if you are in a picture with someone that you don't like anymore, you can get rid of the person. It's like they were never there. Or my favorite one, because I'm a sports fan, was they showed a guy in the NBA who got dunked on, which is the most embarrassing thing that can happen in an NBA game except the guy removed the person dunking from the picture. So it was like it never happened, is what it said. The embarrassment is gone forever. You can remove all these things from your pictures. That's the good news that they promised. You can change your past through your pictures on Google Pixel. I have good news and bad news for you. The bad news is just because you take someone out of the picture doesn't mean it didn't happen. It still really happened, even if you want to change the memory of it. But the good news that I'm going to give you this morning, I'm going to give you two bits of good news, and we're going to apply it to Jonah. Good news, number one, you're never going to be able to fix all the problems of your life. That's the good news. 
And Jonah gives us a really great entry point into that. So Google Pixel says you can just remove things and act like they never happened. I'm going to say on the opposite. It's actually really good news that you're not able to fix all the problems in your life. So I, this can go from silly examples like Google Pixel. Um, I, I had a couple other silly examples this week. I, I've just noticed a lot recently that every time I come to the church building, there's more litter on the front lawn. And it's because the wind blows off of the ocean and our building is a nice wide stone sturdy building to where every piece of litter in Salem I think hits our building and then just rests on our lawn. So it's become part of my common practice to walk in and do like a litter circle and try to clean up the trash as I can. And if I didn't get all the pieces this morning now you know it. maybe you can help me. Um, another thing I noticed this week this is probably getting too personal but I was combing my hair this week and I looked down at my comb. I'm like, this is gross. It's like little dry scalp has like gotten caught in my comb. And so have you ever tried to clean that out? Again, this is getting too personal, but it's a never ending awful process. Like it's just, you're never gonna be able to fix all the problems in your life. I I have another couple of things here, but I'm gonna spare you the personal. I'll give you one more. The dust on my kid's fan, their like table fan in their room, trying to clean those things. That's a battle that I just am sick of trying to finish. Anyway, and obviously there's more serious examples of things that you can't fix. There's relationships in life are really hard. And sometimes you get to a place where you're like, I just don't know how to fix this relationship. Or certainly if you have health or or a disease in your body. Some of those things are really hard to fix or to resolve. But the good, the good news, again, this is good news, is that there's some problems that you're just not gonna be able to fix. And I would say that's not the point. You're not gonna be able to fix all your problems in your life. And the Bible's reason for this, it gives a very clear, easy understanding for why this is the case. It doesn't say it's gonna be easy to fix. But it says the reason that these things exist is because we live in a sinful, broken world. The Bible term for sin is an archery term. So if you're an arch, someone who has done archery, you'll know there's a, a dartboard, essentially, and you're trying to hit the center of it, bullseye. And the ancient term sin comes when you, if you miss the center, it's sin. You miss the mark. It's off base. So you see, you may say, okay, that helps me understand sin. But, but if you're a mother or a parent in the room, I think you really understand what sin means. And so I'm going to quote the mother of John Wesley. John Wesley is one of the more famous Christians of the last 300 years. And his mother actually has a recorded statement for what she says sin is, which I think is wonderful because I think parents probably understand sin better than anybody because we see the brokenness from day one up to now. She says this, it's a little wordy because this was a couple hundred years ago, but this is what she says. Whatever weakens your reasoning, whatever impairs the tenderness of your conscience, whatever obscures your sense of God, whatever takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in and of itself. That's by Susanna Wesley. 
So as we look at Jonah, again, we've been in Jonah for a few weeks now. We find Jonah in the storm. Remember, Jonah was sinful. He was disobedient to God. He ran the other direction. God called him to Nineveh. He ran the other direction, got on a boat, and now is sailing as fast as he can to Tarshish, the opposite side of the continent. In verse 11, the sailors have discovered that Jonah is the problem. That's what happened last week. They said, okay, Jonah just revealed to us that he's actually the one that has brought this about us, brought this upon us. And in verse 11, they say, what shall we do to you then that the sea may quiet down for us? And this is the part, I think, where we see the reality of sin. It said, for the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. Or we could say today, the waves were really wavy. The storm was really stormy and it wasn't slowing down. It was getting worse and worse. What does this mean? The storm was getting worse and worse. It just means that humans are living in a sinful reality where things like storms and big waves and danger are about, around us and about us everywhere. Sin is everywhere and seemingly never ending and the effects are everywhere. But the way the Bible talks mostly about sin and the effects of sin is a heart condition, the inward reality of sin. So we, we see the outward effects of sin from the things I mentioned earlier or the tempestuous sea that Jonah and the sailors are now on. That's a result of brokenness and sin in the world. But primarily it's about the inside of us. Sin begins in our heart in our condition as humans. And Jonah's disobedience to God is firstly a heart condition. So the thing about the book of Jonah that we just don't get much detail on or about your own life is what's behind the actions. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? We get some clues throughout the story. I even said Jonah last week was nationalistic you know, or maybe even racist, depending on how much you want to read into it. So there's some, there's some jumps you can make, but we don't know exactly what was happening in Jonah's heart. What was his life like? Why did he not want to listen to God? Where did his trust of God go off course? When did he first begin to lose sight of who God was? And remember, he's a professional follower of God. He's a prophet. That's his job. And even he got off the map somehow. And we don't know why. But what the Bible does make clear throughout the story of the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is that the heart is broken. That because of the original sin of Adam and Eve, that we are broken people. And sin is a part of all of our stories. And so we can make that assumption of Job because we can make that assumption about all of us. None of us are perfect. None of us are wholly good. And so the sailors get the, they get the effects of Jonah's heart sin. And it's in a pretty big way because Jonah was sinning in a pretty outward way. Jonah had some kind of discontentedness with God, a longing for purpose that was not felt. And it came out as rebelliousness to God. And then ultimately God is tracking him down out of his mercy, really. But he brings a storm to do it. And the poor sailors, they're caught in the storm. They're caught in the effects of Jonah's personal heart sin. Now, another detail that's not mentioned in the story, 
is the sailors are sinful people too. So there's probably examples in the story of Jonah being affected by the sailors' sins too. I mean, there's a reason people, people call people with a foul mouth, like, oh, you, you talk like a sailor. I'm just envisioning there's some kind of sins that the sailors, whether it was with their speech or not, that probably came later on in history, but the sailors probably had sins that affected Jonah as well. And that's how life works. When you're with other people, you are mutually affected by each other's sin. And it's probably more pervasive than we ever know. And there's probably more grace and mercy that God surrounds us with that blocks us from the effects of people's sin more than we'll ever realize. But the point here is that the heart sins of man and women is pervasive, more and more tempestuous. You said this was good news, right, Stephen? (laughs) It's good news that we can't fix our problems? That's right. So let me give you some options within this first point of what options do we have to deal with sin? Let's look at Jonah and some of the options we have from Jonah and then some options that maybe we can find in our own life. Option number one, give up. That's Jonah. (laughs) Jonah gives up. He said, I'm gonna rebel against God. I'm gonna go the other direction. And when I realize that my sin has caused such a problem, I'm going to suggest to them that they throw me overboard. Jonah says, I'm done. I give up. And that's an option we have with sin. When we recognize the brokenness that we have in our life or the sins that we live into or the difficulty of life in general, we may just say, fine, I'm done. Just, there's no hope. Throw me in the sea, God. Jonah acknowledges that he's the problem and that's, That's a great first step. That's the good necessary first step to recognize that the sin is in him. But he has no hope for what to do other than just to die. He's similar to other characters in the Bible, actually. Guys like Elijah, who finds himself despondent in the wilderness because he feels like he's the only faithful follower of God left in the whole nation. It's all other prophets of, of Baal and these other gods. And Jonah or and Elijah in the story in 2 Kings says, I just am stuck. God, just, just take my life now. I'm done. And even Moses at times gets despondent in the wilderness and says, I, I don't know what else to do. No one else is helping me. I'm just doing this all by myself. Jonah, kind of in a, on the other side of that same spectrum, is giving up because he feels like he has nothing to offer, nothing, no purpose. And so he's given himself over to despondency and depression and even suicide at this point. And sometimes that feels like it's the only option for him, but it's not the only option. And in this story, we see another option of how to deal with sin. And it comes through the sailors. So the sailors here, they acknowledge. So in verse two, Jonah says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea because then I know that the sea will quiet down. But in verse 13, look how the sailors respond. They don't, they don't do that first. They don't throw him into the sea first. So this is the second option for how to deal with sin, to work harder, to try to overcome it. Verse 13, it says, nevertheless, the men, the sailors, rode hard to try to get back to dry land. 
They said, no, Jonah, we're going to try to save you through this. This is actually a really beautiful spirit that the sailors are showing. They, I think they hear Jonah and they probably believe him, but they're saying, there's got to be another way. There's got to be another way for God to let this sin pass over. And so they say, we're going to try to beat this, Jonah. Let's do it together. Let's row as hard as we can. Let's try to save ourselves. Let's try to save ourselves. Even though they were good spirited, it was a fool's errand. And it's a fool's errand for us to try to work harder to beat our own sin as well. They had no chance. The storm was too big. It was too tempestuous. And our sin is too heavy for us to try to beat as well. While working hard is good, while working out your salvation with fear and trembling and pursuing your sanctification through pursuing God, by coming to church, by confessing your sin, all those spiritual disciplines are good things, but those things will not save you because you can't fix some things in your life. Some things you can, sin you can't. We will keep falling short. So the only other option, the third option, giving up, working harder, the only other option there is in our life, the only other option there was in Jonah and the sailor's story is to admit that the solution has to come from outside of you. Verse 14, well, verse 13, it says, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It was getting more and more stormy. Verse 14, therefore, they called out to the Lord. Coming to the end of yourself without fully giving up and without being foolish enough to think that you can fix it all on your own, that's the place where we have to land. That's the place where we have to, we have to trust that God's grace will allow us to land softly. To come to the end of yourself and admit that there's only one way and it's outside of my current circumstances. They called out to the Lord in desperation to show their dependency on the God of the land and the sea. They throw Jonah overboard, verse 15. They picked him up, hurled him into the sea. Jonah is the sacrifice for all those on board and it was his fault. And Jonah is the substitute for the rest of them because though it was his fault, he put all of them in harm's way because of his sin. And Jonah is the only one who could satisfy the tempestuous sea that God had sent on them. And in verse 15, the sea ceased from its raging because of the sacrifice, because of the substitute, and ultimately because God was satisfied that Jonah hit the water hard for his sin. And so Jonah goes down and down into the water, sinking in the depths of the sea because of his sin, because of his disobedience. So we pause on Jonah for a moment and the story shifts to the sailors just for one last spotlight on the sailors before they exit off the stage, just like the microphone was. The sailors are about to never be seen again in this story. But we get one last comment on them. Then the men feared the Lord 
exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Earlier, we had read that the sailors had feared God, that they were, I'm sorry, we, earlier we had read that the sailors were afraid and then that they were exceedingly afraid. Here it says that their fear turned to God, that they weren't afraid of the sea anymore because the storm had stopped. But now they were fearful in the most reverent, worshipful way of the God who brought the storm. Their eyes had been turned from the storm to the God. They were worshiping the God of Israel. These guys who are not from Israel, these guys who probably worship their own gods because they cried out to them earlier, now they're crying out to the one God because they see a power that they've never seen before. This is the end of their part of the story of Jonah. We're not gonna see them anymore, but this is the beginning of their spiritual journey with the one true God the rest of their life. Wouldn't you love to know what happened when those sailors got to shore? What stories they were telling their friends? Back to Jonah. Jonah's sinking in the water. His life is in God's hands. When he hit the water, the storm instantly stops. So there's momentary peace in the storm. But what does, what does God choose to do with him? Does he sink all the way to the bottom, never to be heard from again? Does he pay the penalty with his life? Does he die a sacrificial substitutionary death? Insert fish into the story. The one part everybody knows about the story of Jonah, the great fish appointed by God for Jonah. Jonah is in the hands of the living God who appoints a fish to catch Jonah. This is one of two divine appointments that Jonah will find in this book. One is a fish and one is a plant. I'm sure it's the two things you thought would always save you too. Next time you go to a restaurant, just order fish and salad and pretend that that's what it's all about. Coming to the end of yourself is the beginning of the good news, where humility is learned, where repentance occurs, and where the grace of God is found. I want to read you just an illustration this week of, I was listening to a podcast, um, and it's this guy who's a, he's a writer for the Atlantic uh, newspaper, and he's giving cultural predictions for 2023. It's a little long, but I'm going to read it to you uh, just to give you the word-for-word summary by him. The title of the article is America's Teenage Girls Are Not Okay. Rising Teen Anxiety is a National Crisis. These are his words from now on. The Youth Risk Behavior Survey is a CDC survey that is the gold standard for measuring the state of teen behavior and teen mental health. And it just came out this past week, February 16th, that the latest numbers between 2011 and 2021 that the share of teenage girls who say they experience, quote, persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased from 36% in 2011 to 57% in 2021. So nearly six in 10 teenage girls say they feel persistent sadness or hopelessness. The share of girls who say they, com- they contemplated suicide has increased 50% in the last decade. This is just an astonishing, important, astonishingly important thing 
I mean, I can't emphasize it enough how striking the statistic is and how strange it is in the context of other numbers. For instance, this is the richest country in the history of the world. This is a period of peace. We're not at war. It's a period of economic growth. We have the lowest unemployment rates since the 1960s. We have nearly the lowest poverty rate on record. Child food insecurity has been declining for decades. This is not a situation where you can easily point to some material condition and say, well, of course, they're more concerned than ever about their parents trying to find a job or about where the next meal is coming from. You can't point to that. And, you, and then you look at teen behavior. Bullying is actually on the decrease statistically. Teens are smoking less. They're drinking less. They're doing fewer drugs. That's, that's even true if you include vaping. So you've got this just unbelievably fascinating mystery Teen anxiety is rising exponentially, but all these subjects you might look at ruling out. So, of course, what do you rule in? Well, you add in smartphones, he says. You rule in social media, he says. You rule in parenting styles, he says. This is such an important question, and there's really not a national conversation going on about it yet. So, you know, there's not a, congr a congregational uh, committee or some kind of blue ribbon that's been happening. He says, this is not an exciting prediction for 2023, but his prediction for 2023 is that this conversation is going to enter the mainstream in a real way. We're going to have a more salient national conversation around teen anxiety. He finishes by saying this, in a way, by the end of this year, I would predict it is going to be impossible for people to say, quote, I didn't know about that statistic. Everyone is going to know about that statistic because it is so important and in a certain light, it is so mysterious. You can't fix all your problems in your life. And there's some problems you look at and you say, how in the world do you fix that? And so this is the good news number two, but we'll finish with today. The good news number two is that just like in the story of Jonah, where Jonah is sacrificed and substituted for the sins of them, the good news for us is that there is the problems that we have have already been fixed in one person. And so when you look at a giant problem like teen anxiety, what hope do you have for fixing a problem like that when it seems like all the things that should help alleviate that are not working? What hope do you have to fix a problem like that? And that's probably one of a hundred issues you could look at and say, we have everything lined up to fix it, but it's not working. So what will work? And the only answer is the Christian church we can say is a true sacrifice and substitute has to have occurred that will satisfy the pain of a sinful world. There was a guy on Twitter, just to tap into the social media world for a second, a random guy on Twitter who said this, not a Christian, mind you. He said, quote, we should just pin all the debt in the world on one person and then kill that person to try to get rid of all this tough stuff. And then a Christian responded very coyly, boy, do I have good news for you. That is the message of the gospel in a nutshell. All of the sin of the world has been put on one person to pay the debt for the whole world, and we did kill him. He is the sacrifice and the substitute and the satisfaction. And the, the hope of the story of Jonah for us is that Jonah was not the perfect substitute or sacrifice that satisfied the sin problem. 
Because as Mike reminded me this week from Psalm 49, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his own life. One sinful man cannot substitute for other sinful men. So therefore Jonah could not substitute for you and me because he was so sinful. He could help spare the sailors on the boat, but he couldn't spare you and me. Michael Jordan this week made a $10 million contribution in honor of his own 60th birthday to the Make-A-Wish Foundation. A beautiful act of kindness and generosity by Michael Jordan. And it's gonna do a lot of good for those kids' lives, but it's not gonna save their life. It's not gonna save their soul. It was a great act of kindness and generosity, but even a $10 million gift is not gonna save someone's soul. Jonah was simply like many others in the Old Testament, a forerunner to the coming Messiah, a forerunner to the coming Jesus, a forerunner of redemption, a person who who points ahead to the true and better Jonah. When Jonah hit the water and sank into the ocean, the storm calmed, but now God was after Jonah himself. How would Jonah be saved? There's a beautiful hymn called, What Wondrous Love Is This, O My Soul? And verse two says, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. Jesus is the true and better Jonah. And Jesus said it explicitly in the book of Matthew. In chapter uh, 16, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered them, only an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And that's our trust as Christians. We can't fix our sin problems. And that's not the point. The point is that Jesus did. So just a couple of practical things to leave you with. What do we do now? Number one, stop looking for a new sign of something to fix your sin. Social media will give you a hundred million examples of how to improve your life. Stop looking for new signs of evidence. The substitute has come. The sacrifice has been made. Satisfaction has occurred. Jesus said it is finished. Trust in him. That's number two, trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus means I'm banking my life on you relationally, Jesus. God wants a relationship with you. And it's possible through faith in his name. Number three, make it a daily habit to repent of your sins. First thing you do when you wake up in the morning, God, whatever I'm about to do today, I repent of it. (laughs) And when you lay your head down at night, God, I'm sorry for the things that I did today that were wrong. 
I am so dependent on you. Thank you for your grace to me today. Number four, find ways to actively kill sin in your life. Old theologians would call this the mortification of sins, which means make it every indication to go to war against the sins in your life. Don't just let them come to you. Actively go against them. Put them to death. And then number five, live by the Spirit of God. So put to death what is earthly in you and live to God. Live by the Spirit of God. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if you live by the Spirit in you and are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The fish that Jonah finds himself in, that you're going to get a monologue on next week inside the fish, that is the vessel of grace to Jonah to bring him to life, to let him live by the Spirit. And so that's my hope for us is that we would find ourselves in the belly of that same fish and pray the kind of prayer we're going to see next week taught on by Jonah, the kind of prayer that he calls out to in his moment of desperation, that we would live to God, trust in him. This is the gospel in the book of Jonah, pointing ahead to Jesus. Let me close by this quote, just to give you a clear definition of what the gospel is. It's by Tim Keller, because he's my hero. (laughs) The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Let me close us in prayer. God, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the good news. Pray that it would find a soft place in our hearts today. Help us to know how to believe and how to put our whole life on you. To see that our sins do not hold us back from you, but rather they they draw you closer to us. You send your mercy and grace to us in the fish, but more so in the person of Jesus, who is our perfect sacrifice and substitute. We give our lives to you. We worship you now. It's in his name we pray. Amen.